Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live, where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the head of market analysis, and joined by our head of trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Hello, and welcome to the latest Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live with myself, Anthony Chung, head of market analysis, and Piers Curran, the head of trading. Uh, it's the 5th of March. We've just had U.S. non-farm payrolls come out, and we're going to talk about that a little bit with the focus this week still very much so centered on U.S. yields and the potential impact across asset classes, particularly emphasis on the equity and, and tech space. And we're also going to talk about OPEC. We had a very interesting OPEC meeting of which did see oil prices move up to uh, the highest levels that we've traded really going back till. Um, the period of April of 2019. So phenomenal move there. We'll discuss that in a bit more detail. But before I begin, Piers, um, as you know, I, I did have to make a bit of a trip to the hospital uh, yesterday. Not for myself, thankfully, but my, my daughter had a, an appointment. She's fine. Um, but it's the first time really that I've left the bubble that is my very routine based life at the moment, because obviously you're working at home, you're living at home, you can't really do too much when you go to the supermarket. It's the first time I really got out and we had to travel some way to go and see a specialist. And I just wanted to say to start the podcast, just what an amazing job the NHS do. I mean, it's incredible. Like I, I just, it, when the pandemic started, I remember really almost a year ago, and everyone was doing the clap for carers and there was a real feeling amongst unity. And I think a lot of that's been, been lost a little bit because people have got fatigued by the whole thing. And it's the first time I've been to, to visit a hospital, thankfully, um, since it all began. And I saw the marquees and the, the facilities they've brought in temporarily. And it's just amazing what they've, what they've achieved and what they've done. So just wanted right. to give my, give my appreciation. You're right about Actually, you make a good point there about we've, we've kind of slipped back into taking it for granted mm. mode, haven't we? 
um, which I think probably most people are guilty of, especially, you know, if you, if, if you don't come across the NHS, if you've been stuck at home and you haven't been going to get your vaccine and you haven't needed to go to hospital for other reasons, it's kind of, again, just drifted off into the background. Although I did see yesterday, I mean, this is where the government, we won't dwell on this too much, but the, the government have decided in their great wisdom to reward all those those amazing heroes on the NHS frontline to reward them with a 1% pay rise. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm going to get a new job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. Um, but no, I think the main thing to convey here is not only um, what an amazing job that those people who really put their lives at risk and on the front line for everyone else's sake, but also for everyone else, you know, mentally physically i hope everyone is well and you know i think i think we'll push on but just wanted to drop that in at the beginning because as Piers said i think it has gone a little bit forgotten and it's easy to get quite absorbed in just yep. what we're doing here but gonna kick it off then Piers. let's talk about opec um so the price of oil has has basically from where we were trading if you remember we were having conversations back at the beginning of november we were trading 35 bucks november and here we are, we're, we're over $65 at the moment. You know, it's been quite incredible. In the last 24 hours, we've risen about five bucks. And so to get you up to speed, OPEC Plus, uh, they had one of their monthly meetings yesterday, and they chose not to relax supply curbs, even as the global economy pulls out of the pandemic kind of driven slump. And that confounded widespread um, expectations that the group was going to basically loosen the taps a little bit with a 1.5 million increase in supplies, uh, and that didn't materialize. So any initial thoughts on that? Um, well, it's that classic perfect scenario, isn't it, for price where you've got both the supply side and the demand side, you know, all strongly pushing in the same direction. So obviously the demand story we've, we've talked about, you know, with the vaccine rollout and, and the subsequent reopening of economies and so that you know clearly the idea is that the demand for energy will increase and so that's nice and positive and then on the supply side yeah you you've got uh, that those supply cuts that were put into place well i guess you've got to go back to the uh, 12 months right when when the pandemic um properly hit the world those supply cuts came in and then this is all about those supply cuts not being reduced right and so you've got this perfect situation for price and i'm, I'm literally watching the chart now as we speak and right now as we speak we're testing the high from january 2020 actually so we're above that so the key price i'm literally looking at it, it was the april 2019 high which was at 66 dollars and 60 cents that's wti crude and so you know we're, we're yeah we're, we're less than a dollar off that now so you know looking for that to be tested but yeah, perfect Perfect storm. So, so there's there's looking at the details uh, within this deal because uh, OPEC is incredibly you know, understanding the underlying politics that drive these decisions is, is very key to, uh, to understanding um, the, the reaction effects here. OPEC plus decided against a collective 500,000 barrel per day increase in supplies, but they did allow Russia and Kazakhstan to be allowed a small production raise of 150,000 barrels per day together for the month of April. So is that just kind of a, um, a kind of let's look, Russia is incredibly important. It's obviously really comes down to Saudi Russia 
as the real influencers here. And to, do you think then that the Saudi said, look, Russia, to get you on board, here's 150? Because presumably then Kazakhstan's not adding much of that 150. Completely. It's entirely political. You know, you, you've been monitoring OPEC for whatever, 15 years, and you know how it works. I mean, for those that don't, then, you know, well, don't, don't forget, actually, OPEC plus is still relatively new. It used to only be OPEC, of course, and, and the plus bit is then kind of the likes of Russia coming in to be kind of like a, a pseudo member of this club, right? And it's incredibly political how, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a great history of, you know, very fractious relationships within this club. And you've only got to look at like, for example, Saudi Arabia and Iran are in this club. And of course, you know, from all angles, these two, don't get on so well. And so you can imagine what it's like when you're sat around the table with one common topic for conversation. And that's, should we produce more oil as a group or should we produce less oil as a group? And everyone's got their own little agendas and a lot of political bad taste from previous, from history. And so it's very hard to get decisions made. I think Saudi, who are the biggest producer in that group and along with Russia, let's just say now that they've joined it, I'd say that um, it's quite interesting. I think Saudi have made a major change in their sort of strategy when it comes to handling OPEC in 2021. And that was seen, not the meeting last um, a few days ago, but it, that was the one back in January where they cut production by a million barrels just on their own. Um, do you remember that? And that, that's never, I've never seen that before. Right. So, so where this 1.5 million expectation came for the meeting this week was derived from OPEC plus collective 500,000. And as you said, Saudi Arabia were supposed to be putting back on a million barrels per day. It was voluntary, extraditional cuts. I mean, it just goes to show how, how important a higher price is for the, for the diversification pursuit of that vision 2030 that Saudi has to achieve to, to realize that. And so, yeah, they, they maintained that. They, they didn't um, kind of reverse that. And so that was what drove this price higher. But interestingly, Saudi's view was that this time, and to touch upon what you were saying, the 2021 is a very different but similar decision-making now that Saudi is making. It's a different strategy approach perhaps now. But back in 2014-15, they were, they were faced with a similar type of thing. And this was the emergence of US shale productivity. And Saudi said yesterday, their view this time round is higher prices will not lead to a big increase in output by American shale drillers. Do you agree with that um, outlook so, from the Saudis? I mean, let's just very, very briefly give the listeners a bit of a history lesson because if you weren't trading back in 2014 or if you weren't aware of markets so much back then just very very quickly um in 24 well th through let's say from 2010 through to 2015 what happened was we had a the price of oil was a hundred was above 100 bucks consistently and that higher price led to huge investment going into the u.s shale production sector and u.s oil production went from about four million barrels a day up to about nine or ten million barrels a day okay and this meant that the likes of OPEC lost market share. They were supplying the US, but the US was producing more of their own. And so 
OPEC were losing market share to the US shale producers. And in 2014, the Saudis came up with a cunning plan. Let's collapse the price of oil. And that's because the, the process of shale is much more expensive. It's much more an expensive extraction process than, let's say, onshore drilling like the Saudis do. So the Saudis thought if we collapse price here, it will actually make shale production economically unviable. We'll put the shale producers out of business and we'll win back market share. Okay, so so add, adding perspective to that explanation for the listeners, crude oil, WTI, was trading in August 2014, $107. And by the time we got to February 8th of 2016, we were trading at $26, yeah. with the emphasis on that drop coming through the back end of 2014, where we dropped from 107 to basically 45 bucks. I remember it. One of my best days as a trader, I think it was the 27th of November, 2014, think that was right OPEC where the Saudis came out and surprised everyone they we thought they were going to cut production and then not only did they not cut they turned around and increased production <laughs> and that was part of their strategy let's collapse price put the US lot out of business it failed that strategy failed um, and that's because the US guys were I don't know I guess using quite clever derivative products to hedge against um, price drops anyway. There was also a huge amount of credit availability, a lot of lending from the US financial system to kind of help these shell producers um, anyway. So look, that, it, it's important you understand that historical context when you fast forward to today, because today you've got people now giving the same argument and people are saying, well, hang on, now oil prices are, have risen quite dramatically. Isn't this going to play into the hands of the US shale producers? Aren't you now going to see the US shale producers start to ramp up production again? And isn't that bad for OPEC? So why aren't OPEC trying to bring the price back down by removing these production cuts? I mean, this is the argument. And actually, um, yeah, the, the Saudis were saying, I've got a quote here from yesterday. It's quite funny. And the Saudis are saying, no, today's, you know, 2021 is different to 2014. And the Saudis are basically saying, it's fine. We think price can carry on going up. And we think that the shale producers will not be able to ramp up production like they did last time. And their, their quote was, um, they were saying, they're not convinced saying that the drill baby drill ethos among US companies is gone forever. I mean, do they not have, um, aren't they right? I mean, it is different in that respect. I mean, the availability of credit is going to change. Um, yields are going to move higher. Um, the, the chronic lack of investment in US infrastructure over the period of what we've gone through is lacking. It can't be turned on. It's not like they can just create and turn on rigs tomorrow. And Saudi are talking about what rolling over a month or two. I mean, isn't is, don't they not have validity in this strategy at the moment? I think that in the short term, I think they're right. Hmm. Um, I think longer term. I mean, it's a tricky one. I mean, you say that. I mean, the other thing is to bring in on the U.S. side is Biden and and the fact that you know, we don't have Trump anymore. And if Trump was in office here, he'd be firing up the US shale industry, you know, he'd be, he'd be out there kind of funding them to the max if he could. But obviously, we don't have Trump, right? And Biden's about renewables. But um, I think you've got to understand the importance of the shale industry to the US economy still. 
um, Obama kind of came into power in 2009 and he was on the green agenda as well. It's not quite as, it doesn't have the momentum that the Biden green agenda has, but Obama kind of entered into office thinking, right, yeah, we're going to go more green. It's not going to be much about oil. But then actually he inherited an economy that was on its knees in 2009. And he came to realize that actually a recovery of the US oil industry would be fantastic for recovering the US economy and, and bringing jobs back to people. And actually you could you go back then and um, 10, as much as 10% of US growth in those early years after the crisis was, was due to the oil sector. So Biden's come in and he's got a disaster of an economy as well because of, 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 of the global pandemic. So I don't think, even though Biden is green, I don't think he's going to immediately introduce legislation that's going to curb mm. the recovery of the oil sector. So that's just one thing to say. And the other thing to say is, look, don't underestimate these US oil producers in terms of clever ways of finding financing and you know being uber you know i don't know what's the best word it's sort of it's confidence isn't it but it's more than that it's it's bravado and they want to get out there and, and start drilling again and um so whilst the saudis have a point and i think it's fine price can rise and all right the shale industry is not going to recover tomorrow but the longer we stay up around, let's say, 65 to $70, then, mm. uh, you know, I think you will see that shale industry um, recover. Well, one, one thing, just to, to wrap up this section, is when you talked about 2014 and going into 2015, we had that big collapse in the global oil prices. Do you remember what the other key factor was, particularly during 2015, summer of 2015? Um testing you now 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 you are testing me what was the other was there anything to do with the dollar can't remember what tell china me? china hard ah, landing yes do you yes, remember yes. there were a couple of days there where the dow was down 10 percent yes. during that summer like some serious moves because you saw a deceleration in chinese growth going from yeah. double digit growth to single digit rapidly towards collapsing from eight to seven and lower at the time and people were getting very nervous and obviously China's such a massive consumer of crude um, and I make this point because last night of course was the National People's Congress and they came out and said they're targeting at least six percent growth now six percent growth if you're based in the western developed world you'd probably be like wow buy your arm off for some of that six percent action and we might well see that in the case of the US in the second half of this year. But generally, that is, that's not good for Asia in historical terms, looking on comparisons. So um, yeah, the, the way the Asian market took that overnight was actually they didn't like it. Because normally, the Chinese state is quite, quite bullish. Yeah. Um, so interesting to see how that, that also is part of this whole yeah. OPEC oil play as well. And for sure, one of the big reasons, one of the big driving forces of oil up to here, two-year highs, is, is definitely China. It's China emergence from the pandemic and China recovering faster than we'd expected. And so Chinese demand for oil recovering faster than we had expected. And that's a big part of this, this bu such bullishness in com combination with, you know, the continued um, suppressed supply that we've got from OPEC. Great. Well, look, let, let, let's do a brief chat then about payrolls. 
and we can kind of tie that back into you know the general market moves we've seen this week and uh, non-farm payroll headline reading so changing on farms 379,000 above the expected 182 uh, the previous month's revision was up to 166 from 49,000 two months net revision plus 38k and the unemployment rate was 0.1 lower than expected at 6.2%. The average hourly earnings were, were just in line. So overall, pretty decent report. And actually, what we initially saw looking at the data release intraday, the market didn't like it. And I guess setting this, the scene is Thursday night, we had a bit of a wobble because US yields started to move above the area that was defining the peak of the acceleration of global yields we had last week, which was causing a lot of market panic we spoke about in last week's podcast. And so the initial reaction was equity sold off, gold sold off, T-notes sold off, yields spiked. But then all of a sudden, it reversed within five minutes and equities saw a very firm rally. And actually, if you look at equities now, we're pretty much back to where we started. (laughs) So how important is payrolls in this context? I love this short term. The, the, yeah, trying to trade intraday payrolls today, really tough. I mean, as you said, it, firstly, I'm just looking. The S and P sold off from <laughs> it sold off like from 37.80 down to 37.55, right? So let's just call like 25 point sell off. Okay, it then turned. It then rallied back entirely, 25 points. Then it continued rallying another 35. Then it hit a top. Then it sold off back 35, back to exactly square one where we were trading before the data. Violent moves in both directions. And I think it perfectly sums up people's, uh, they're not quite sure what to do with all of this. I think there's just too many big pieces of information and people aren't quite sure how to fit it together in their jigsaw about what's gonna happen next with markets in the next few months. So you've got this competing, um, this conflicting argument around on the one hand, really good economic data here from the US showing that the economy is emerging faster than expected. You know, we've got great numbers on their vaccine rollout, which is really gathering momentum now. And people's expectations about US growth are being revised up and revised up and revised up. Okay, and this is a really positive thing for the economy. And so you'd think positive for stocks, right? But then, unfortunately, this is also the the, right now, the big theme over the last couple of weeks for markets and traders hasn't been about the positive economy. It's been freaking out, tantruming about higher yields, as we talked about on the podcast last week. And so whilst you're getting these strong data points, it's just reinforcing that whole oh, inflation is going to go up and this is driving yields up. OK, and the Fed, I mean, you t- remind me, what did, the, what did Powell say yesterday, which kind of all played into this uh, another little mini panic here? Yeah, he, was, he, he essentially fell short of trying to like rein in bond yields. He definitely doesn't want to comment explicitly on that type of market movement. And so yeah, it was more, it was more than reiteration. I mean, you're watching the comments when he was coming out and he, his comments were definitely the trigger point that saw a spillover in equities last night at the time. But he didn't yeah. really say anything. I mean, it was yeah. definitely nothing too new there of information to latch onto. But I guess that's the point, right? People are wanting him or looking for him to say something. They are desperate. Those that are really finding this painful, this yield move, they're desperate for him to say something 
that's going to help with that situation. Now, that's irrational. And we were talking about this on the podcast last week. There's no way he's going to say anything, right? We know that. But there are people who are stuck in these positions where it's hurting, are desperate now. And so when he doesn't say something to help, then there's another wave of fear. And that's what drove stocks sharply lower again last night. It's interesting today with that really strong data. Is this the turning point? I'm going to maybe put my neck on the line here. This whole yields higher, stocks lower thing. Is this the turning point today where people are going, well, actually, all right, yields are going higher. But you know what? The more important thing is the economic outlook is improving so rapidly that actually that perhaps is now a bigger positive that trumps the higher yield negative. Right. So, you know, higher yield environment in a traditional sense would be positive growth reflection and with low rates and generally equities would perform well in those circumstances. I mean, interesting on the breakdown of payrolls, almost entire amount of that um, jobs created in the last month came from leisure and hospitality, hmm. which, which obviously has been decimated since the lockdowns that have happened. But it's, hard, it's always hard to put your finger on what is exactly this, the state of play with lockdowns in America, given their system is very much on a state federal level comparative to say UK European nationwide strategy. But yeah. the one thing you know we were looking at earlier was the COVID, COVID case numbers and also the vaccination numbers. And case numbers in Europe are moving higher quickly in Italy, slowly higher in Germany. They rolled over their lockdown earlier um, this week. And on the vaccination side, the UK actually has plateaued after this amazing onboarding, if you like, of the Astra drug and distributing that, hitting that mid-Feb target. I mean, how political might that be, Piers? They had that Feb, Feb 15th target, all guns committed to that. They hit it a day early. It's funny how it's just come <laughs> off the boil now. Now it's not such a focal point and the roadmap's out. Everyone stops talking about it and it's actually decelerated the last couple of days. And America yeah. has gone up. I and mean, America's superseded the UK now in terms of per 100 people. Yeah. I mean, I think with the UK, look, we're so far ahead it's going to take a spectacular sort of wheels coming off of the vaccine rollout for us to kind of lose ground. I mean, fine. It's, uh, I think what people are wanting to see, again, are the more bullish sort of estimations where they're hoping to see the supply of vaccine in the UK rise to 5 million a week, enabling, you know, all adults to be vaccinated by, by the start of June. Right. And so I think you're getting similar noises in the US now. And I think that's obviously from a global point of view, Clearly, the US is way more of a, an important factor than the UK is. Um, and so I think, yeah, the US really gathering momentum on that vaccine rollout is really playing into a number of big moves. And it's not just yields, you know, just looking at the dollar, it's had a great week. I mean, the dollar's been quite rampant, um, you know, in response to, well, things like the data today, but, but also in response to Powell. Uh, and um, in response to, you know, this vaccine acceleration, I'm just looking now, the euro dollar is kind of, you know, for, just testing the 119 handle. Um, so that's, that's been a big move to the downside. Um, of, well, just this week and, and kind of last week, um, you know, we were trading up at 124 almost, if you go back uh, to the start of the year. So dollar strength has been a big theme. 
Um, stocks have been really weak, but I wonder whether this data today is, is, is enough to convince people that the economic positive is actually the bigger driver. Um, gold also, maybe we should touch on that because gold's had a really bad, well, bad few weeks, but it's kind of added to um, this week. And again, trading lower down below 1700 bucks. And I guess a key target on that gold downside is around 1667. That was the, the, the June low um, last year. But it's like, it's like the, the worst of all things for gold. You've got everything's bad for gold. You know, you've got dollar strength, um, you've got yields moving higher. Um, and, it, and it's just, uh, and yeah, you could say some risk appetite in certain pockets. And so, yeah, gold's, um, gold's you know, again, further, further downside this afternoon. Okay, so to, to just conclude things then, um, you did mention the euro there. And one of the major things happening next week is the ECB meeting. They will also be releasing their new latest economic forecasts. Anything of interest for you in the ECB? Uh, no, in that they'll continue to stay firm to their current policy. You know, as you just said, numbers, case numbers rising again in some of these countries, Germany extending lockdown, you know, they're, they're behind the curve when you're comparing them to the UK or the US. And so therefore, you know, they're going to continue to pump in the stimulus and probably extend it. And that's what markets are expecting. So I don't think markets will react to anything from them next week. What do you think? Agreed. Um, yeah, there was the Bloomberg regular um, economist survey that came out today, which always comes out the week before the actual meeting. And it was just saying that essentially it's not that they're going to increase the pandemic emergency purchase program, this PEP facility that they've implemented to stimulate over and above their asset purchase program. It's not they're going to increase the envelope. They're just going to increase the timeline of how long it will be around. And that alleviates tension almost for any nervous market participants about perhaps this divergent story at the moment between, yeah, a real acceleration in US vaccine rollout reopening that's going to magnify that divergence because Europe, Europe in terms of Germany, France, Italy, which are your powerhouses, are still frustratingly slow in adopting the vaccine, and that's going to have a consequent impact on the speed of reopening. So, yeah, I think I don't. I'm not looking for too much, to be honest. Um, I think Lagarde and the rest of the ECB Council have, have held firm in a similar fashion to what they've all done, which is look, we're not. You know, they're basically telling you we're not going to comment on these market tantrums, as you as you say, and they're just going to hold the line. I don't see anything to change that, at least at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. And I think just one thing really interesting for next week um, and for tonight, will the euro dollar close below 120? I think technically that would be quite important. And if it does close below 120, then I'd expect that to set the kind of theme for the weeks ahead where, where perhaps you'll see the euro dollar maintain that kind of downward traje trajectory and, and, and stay below 120. Uh, so 120 is quite a key price point, I think, that I'm uh, monitoring. Okay, great. Well, look, a couple of things then just to mention at the end. We are officially 100 subscribers short of hitting 20,000 on the Amplified Trading YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this, I can ask you one favor if you've enjoyed any of the podcasts. If you're not following us on YouTube, just get on there. Help us get over the line. It would be much appreciated. I mean, it's quite a milestone. And, you know, we, we massively appreciate the online community that we have. Is, um, it's just fantastic. And, you know, on the YouTube channel, if 
we put out my daily briefings on there every day. Um, and so if you ever have any questions, just feel free to shoot me a comment on there. I'll always reply, but yeah, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week for more on Friday. Until then, uh, have a great weekend. Take care and stay safe. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.